encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day capitalized wrong near. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we um, ask that you speak to us today, Lord, and uh, help us, Lord, as we consider these things that are written here. And uh, Lord, that we apply it to our own lives. And uh, we just ask you to bless this word and bless your people, Lord. And um, and help us today, Lord. In your name we pray. And everybody said, Amen. Hallelujah. All right. The title of my message is, and you probably heard this phrase before, especially this time of year. How many have ever noticed on a package of um, something you purchase that says, Assembly is required. Assembly is required. And uh, technically what that means is that in order to get more of those packages on the truck, in order to deliver them and stock them and pack them, you know, they have to take something that's extremely large and put it in a very tiny little box. So assembly is required. But um, I'm going to use it a little different this morning. Um Here he's talking about a group of people, and we'll get into the details of why they have um, began to develop this habit. You know, in fact, it's a very logical reason, a very good reason that they've developed this habit. But their habit is not to meet together, not to assemble. And so the writer of Hebrews is trying to encourage them in a time that is extremely difficult, I mean, like, they could lose their life difficult, he's encouraging them not to do what is the habit of some people. And so that's what we want to discuss this morning is um, the habit of some people to not assemble. Um, and, and my idea is assembly is required according to what the Scripture is asking us to do in a very difficult time. Um, and so when I as, I as I get started here, I want to start thinking. In fact, I was talking to a guy the other day and, uh, and somebody that I had um, been involved with and in doing some ministry things in the past. And I was asking him, I said, well, how's things going? And he said, you know what? He said, uh, we were, you know... Traditionally, they've always ran at least 100 people, you know, in what they were doing with their ministry. And he said, you know, Chad, we've had 10 people. He said, uh, we can't figure it out. And I was talking to another guy the other day. Last time I seen him, his sanctuary was full. And I said, well, how are you guys doing? He said, we're running about 20 people. And literally every minister I talk to, it's the same way. It's just people are disappearing. So I, I began to look at statistics. You know, I'm not normally a statistics person or a poll person or see what's happening with churches, but when you look at the um, uh, the statistic, I, in fact, I was sharing it with Eddie and um, Ryan last week. We were talking about it, and it said uh, two years ago during the pandemic, there was an average of 39% of people quit going to church. Let me think that's probably right or wrong. That sounds about right to me. On average, so some more, some less, you know. Um, And then they said it continued into the following year and on average lost 29%. How many think that's reasonably correct? And so when you add them together, you come up with 60, 
6% on average. And so just think about that, you know, the amount of uh, numbers we're talking about in churches across the country. Um, That's national averages. And uh, so as I was looking at those statistics, it gives a lot of different reasons why people don't attend church anymore and, you know, what different things are changing. And, And I think it's wise to try to figure out, you know, why it's happening and, you know, be reactive you know, to what's happening and, and, and try to figure it out. But but also we have to remember, too, that there are certain periods of time it's not unusual. And as we look at this time in Hebrews, we see that it's a very similar time where the habit was to not attend church anymore. And you say, well, it's a little different now. Now we have online, we have all this technological ability, and Paul really didn't have that ability or whoever wrote Hebrews don't have that ability, you know, for them to get together online or, you know, um, have some type of live streaming or something like that. So they really had to gather together. They had no choice. Um, But you also have to think they also didn't have automobiles at that time. So for them to actually have to come together probably was a lot more difficult for them to do than it is for us to have transportation, so they had a lot more limitations to actually get together, and we have a few more options to be able to do it as well, you know. So um, I just want to look at this for a second, and I want to, the first question I think we have to ask is, um, what is the church? The second question is, what is required of the church? The third question that I'm asking myself is, What is your view of the church? And the last thing is, what is your behavior towards the church? And so I think these are questions that I ask myself. You know, like, what is church? Why um, do we assemble together? Why do we get together? Why do we have that practice? Why do we have that tradition? What is the purpose of it? Because uh, when you answer that question, I just want you to think through that mentality and I want you to think through that mentality. If you're here this morning, and technically everybody that's here this morning doesn't have the habit of not being here. You know, most of the people here this morning have the habit of going to church and have had that habit for most of their life, you know. And so, you know, for me to preach this message here is it's not as necessary, but we don't want to slip into the habit of that. But we also want, you know, this to uh, be online where people who have that habit can reevaluate that habit as well. But the question we ask is, those who have that habit, what is their view of church? And so, what is their view of why do we get together? Why do we have this habit of gathering together publicly? Why do we feel like we need to do that? Why is that our tradition of doing that? And I think a lot of the answers would be, well, it's not necessary. You know, it's not important. I can get what I need just by listening online. You know, how many think that a lot of people believe that? Well, I can just get everything that I need online. It's not really necessary to be there in in person. It's not necessary to physically be there. It's a lot easier to stay at home. I'm more comfortable. I, I don't have to dress up. I don't have to worry about all the you know difficulty of getting there. I can get everything that I need online. And so I am the church. The church is not a building. How many have heard this? logic before, and I'm not denying that the church is not in a lot of different locations. 
I'm just saying, what is the answer to what is the church? Is it necessary to assemble together? Is it necessary to have this local assembly? Is it important? The second one is, what is required of the church? Um, And I think the answer, and I'm uh, trying to give answers to people that aren't here. Okay? So, just kind of uh, follow along with me here. I'm trying to speculate, and speculation gets you in a lot of trouble sometimes. But I'm thinking some people would say what is required of me, and I think the answer would be uh, what's required of me is to make sure that I'm doing well. That I'm receiving what I need to receive from the Word. That I'm growing in the Word. That I'm maturing in the Word. Um, that I'm receiving everything that I need from the Word. And if I need to talk to somebody, I have that available. How many think that's probably the thinking process? And I'm just going through a thinking process here. We go through the third one. What is your view of the church? And I think this one's going to have a lot of different answers, a lot of different ideals. You know, there might be some that say, hey, you know, I was damaged by the church, or the church gets complicated, or... I like to have a variety. I like to see what they're all preaching and get the one that relates most to me. You know, and you know, or I want to go. I like these, you know, there's certain ones I follow that I want to listen to on Sunday morning. And so there's all kinds of different, I don't know what all the ideals would be, but there would be what is your view of the church? And however you answer that question is going to also determine, you know, how you apply the scripture in, in Hebrews 14, where he's saying, Don't neglect the meeting together. Uh, What is your behavior towards the church? And so that's also an answer. You know, it's like, you know what? They're fine without me. You know, I'm getting what I need. They're fine without me. They don't need me. They don't, you know, I'm getting what I need online. And so I'm just telling you, just trying to show you, you're listening to my reasoning here and you're thinking to yourself, but wait a minute. There's a lot of things that aren't answered. Those answers don't satisfy a lot of things that we know to be true about the local church. You know, it's very insufficient of an answer if you're if you love the church and you believe in the mission of the church and you believe in the purpose of the church. And so let's get into that. Let's look at the very beginning of the church. You say, oh boy, this is going to be a long message. He's starting at the beginning here. <laughs> Uh, Matthew sixteen eighteen. Jesus is promising to build, or let me throw another word in here that maybe is a good word, assemble the church. Let me know the church is an assembly of lots of different pieces, like almost like Lego. How many have ever built with Lego? You can, all, you can admit it. How many did it last week? Within the last month? Within the last year? Okay, last night for Ryan. So, Jesus is promising here to build His church. And what's He going to build the church out of? Pieces, which are individual believers that He's going to assemble together, right? And He's going to build the church. And He says, now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, He asked His disciples, what do people say that the Son of Man is? Or who do people say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others say Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? 
Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So this admission of faith that that one of his disciples said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He says, upon that, I will build what? I'll, I'll build my church. Now, who does it belong to? It's his church. But he's going to build it upon the profession of these believers. And so he's promising at this point to build it. And so we begin to see it start to take formation in Acts chapter 2. In Acts 2.1 it says, When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together. They were all together. Do you know what that word means in the Greek? No, that's, this time it's a little different. <laughs> in the Greek, that is the word homos, uh, H-O-M-O-S, and it means to be assembled together. All in one place, all at one time. comes from the word H-A-M-A, Hama, Hamos, and those words together uh, literally means that they are assembled together in one place at one time physically. And so here they are all assembled together in one place at one time physically together. It says, when the day of Pentecost arrived and they were all assembled together in one place, suddenly there came from heaven a sound of a rushing mighty wind. It filled the entire house where they were sitting and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So this is the formation. Uh, this is the assembly of all the pieces together. 120 pieces came together to form what is now called the church. And so as they're being formed together, God begins to draw. In fact, you go down to Acts chapter 2, verse 42, It says they devoted themselves. Who are the they? The ones that were just assembled. They were assembled together into a unit that we call the church that He promised to build. Here they are. And it says they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and breaking of bread and the prayers. And in Acts 2.47, a few verses down, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day, who are being saved. So who is the they? The church. So the Lord has added to their number. We see 3,000 people are saved. And so now we begin to see uh, the church, like Jesus promised, the church of those who have been assembled together, physically together. And now as they're added, they're being added to this church. You would say, well, that's pretty logical. But did you ever stop to think... God did not add people to the church without saving them. And God didn't save them without adding them to the church. That sounds simple, doesn't it? You say, well, wait a minute. I have personal salvation. I don't need the church. But God saved them and added them to the church. And He added them to the church, the people that were saved. And so these two are inseparable with each other. When you get saved, where are you added to? 
the assembled ones, the church, the ones that have been called out, assembled together, and they become the church. And so we begin to see this. Acts twenty twenty eight says, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which He obtained with His own blood. You hear that? So who is the church of God? They're the ones that Jesus Christ obtained with His own blood. And who is to be the overseers? The one the Holy Spirit appoints to be overseers of the flock. So when you become a believer purchased by His blood, where do you go? To the church to be have oversight. To be cared for like a flock, to be pastored. Um, Ephesians 2.20 says, Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you are also built together into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So how does God put His Holy Spirit into the church? He assembles us and joins us together. And it's through that together and that joining that God builds a temple that is full of the Holy Spirit. So you see there's a, there's a, there's a connection here that the church has to be connected. The church has to be together. The church has to be that entity called the church. We just can't say, hey, I'm a believer and I'm the church. God has to fitly join us all together and we've got to get along. We've got to be full of the Holy Spirit and we've got to not forsake this gathering together of believers. Now all the churches, as you begin to go to the second church, in fact, you go down to Acts chapter 11 verse 19, we see the second church chronologically, which is the church at Antioch. So the church of Jerusalem, they're together, they're growing by the thousands. Every time somebody's saved, they're added to the church. Then uh, there becomes a tremendous persecution in Jerusalem, so they begin to scatter. So the Bible begins to give us a definition of what the second church looks like. It says, now those, this is Acts eleven nineteen. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among the Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them about the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord." News of this reached what? The church in Jerusalem. And they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, who eventually became Paul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with who? The church, and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. So do we see the second church? All of these believers were scattered from Jerusalem. Just imagine your great Lego creation. How many have ever had a great creation, 
and maybe the dog or somebody messing with you just came and destroyed your whole creation and it scattered. This is what happened. God fitly joins it together like a nice Lego structure. The church is put together, fitly formed together, um, dwelling together in unity, built together, the church. Persecution did what to it? Scattered it. What happened? It coalesced again. It's the biblical pattern that the church gathers together. And so even though they were being persecuted, that you say, well, what did they do? They just called them names and picked on them and told them they were funny-looking Christians? They were killing them. Stephen, we just read Stephen was murdered because of his faith, and people were being persecuted, dragged from their homes, put in prison. And so because of that severe persecution, they had to flee the city. And so you would think to yourself, the best thing to do is just don't gather together. Don't make the same mistake we made in Jerusalem. Let's covertly just not meet together. But what did they do anyway? They coalesced again. God began to form them together again as the church. And so you say, well, man, that would have been a great opportunity to just stay away from each other. You know, I'm a believer. I'm doing all right. I'm over here. And then another one's over here. And I mean, why does the guy from Cyrene need to go get everybody back together? Just go back to Cyrene. You know, go back to all these other areas and quit trying to come back together again because then all they have to do is arrest you guys in a group, but yet they did it anyway. There's something about forming together in a church. And so the gathering together, the uh, assembly, what I'm trying to say in this message, the assembly is required. If it weren't required, God would say just be safe about it and stay apart because it's harder to catch you guys when you're apart. But he was saying, no, you're still stronger together. And so they gathered back together in the next town, which was just northwest of uh, Jerusalem. So they gathered together again. Then you begin to look at um, Revelation, which is you know approximately 60 years later. And you ever notice these churches in Revelation are all different? Smyrna, Philadelphia, you know, Sardis, all these different churches, Laodicea, they're all just really different, but they're all still coalescing together in every city as churches. And they're gathering together, and he's addressing them as such, you know, because their pattern is always to coalesce and be together as assemblies of believers in a local church, okay? And I know this is simple stuff, but I'm just trying to stress that even in the hardest of times, they still gather together to meet. Um, as we go on, Hebrews chapter 10, I want to give a little bit of context to it. In chapter 10, this was written to a group of people that were being really heavily persecuted. In fact, they were Jewish Christians and they were serving Christ, but all they really had to do was say they were Jewish and not Christian, and they would have been uh, protected from the persecution. And so Paul spends the entire book trying to explain to them that Christ is superior to what they had in the Jewish faith, because He was the fulfillment of everything that they believed in the Jewish faith. And so the whole book is trying to make, from about chapter 3 on, 
He's trying to make the case that here's why Christ is superior to what you believed as just being Jewish only. Christ is the fulfillment of everything you believed as a Jew. And so it's worth it to go through the persecution because you're holding on to the Messiah that is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. So don't just go back to what you believe. Stay right where you're at, even though uh, some of your friends are actually being persecuted and dying. And so let me read the whole context of this um, the whole context of this uh, chapter 10. It says, It says, therefore, brothers and sisters, starting in verse 19. Therefore, brothers and sisters. So who's he talking to? Believers, right? Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us to go through the curtain, that is his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God. Okay, so he's summing up everything you said. Now that we've got this high priest, now that we're right with God, now that Christ has died as a fulfillment of our redemption, now that we're in the right place with God, so now what? He says, number one, this is the first uh, command that he gives. Let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled Uh, to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So simple enough. If I'm sitting at home and I'm not assembling together, um, I can fulfill that. I can say, all right, now that my conscience is right toward God, now that I have full faith in in, in a sincere heart with full assurance of faith, how many know what it's like to be there? I accept Him as my Redeemer. I can fulfill that command. Then he goes to the second one in verse 23, and he says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope that we profess, for he who has promised is faithful. So now I'm sincerely trusting him in faith, the only one that can save me, right? I'm good. I'm holding on to hope unswervingly in the hope that I profess because he is faithful, right? That's the second command. And then he throws this one in which is kind of a curveball. And here's the third command. Let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. So now he's saying, well, wait a minute. You have the faith. You have the hope. And now he says, don't stop meeting together. Why? Because you need to encourage and spur other people on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are doing, encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. So why, in this time of persecution when people are dying for their faith, why is he saying you better come together? It's not about you. It's not about me. It's about his church. It's about people who are going through very, very difficult times right now that need the encouragement of somebody else to help spur them on toward good deeds and love and and to help each other through. In fact, I was studying for this message and something I didn't realize, I was reading an analogy and they were uh, talking about this scripture. And uh, how many have ever seen the giant redwood forests? And um, I did not realize this at all. How many have ever studied the root system of redwoods? 
Anybody ever heard about the root system? I'm surprised I haven't heard about this. Um, redwoods have a very shockingly small root system. And you would think, well, man, how is that possible? 2,500-year-old trees? How do they have a root system that's that small? Because usually if you have a big tree, those things, the roots are bigger than the tree itself. You know, and that's why they can't be removed. And if it stayed there 2,500 years, it must have a great root system. But no, the redwoods are unique. The redwoods have a very tiny root system. If the wind were to blow it just a little bit, it would blow it down, except for the fact they're in... They're, they're together in giant forests. And so all of their root systems are tied together. And so a redwood stays for 2,500 years because all the root systems are intertwined together. And so this is what God's calling His church to be. We're entwined together. We're, we're there to be rooted together, fitted together, um, to hold on to each other and encourage one another and build each other up and encourage one another. And uh, that's how God has built His church, is to have a root system that's intertwined with one another and built together strong where the enemy can't touch it and can't uproot it. And so what he's saying here, I want you to look at the Scripture after the context of what I just read. Because if he's saying you've got the faith... He's saying you've got the hope. He's saying, but don't quit meeting together because your fellow believers need you. You know, they need you there to encourage them. Then look what he goes on to say. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left, but only fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Wow, a little harsh, right, Paul? Remember, this is written to who? Brothers and sisters, they had the faith, they had the hope, but don't quit going to church, meeting together. Paul sounds like he's a little concerned that that is a path that is a slippery slope. Wouldn't you agree? Paul sounds, as he goes on here, and I'll read some more, sounds like he's worried if they quit meeting together, it'll actually be damaging to them because they've stopped meeting together. But I think they're thinking, I'll be much safer. You know, I'm taking care of myself. I'm in good shape. I won't be arrested, you know. But you're pulling yourself from that root system. You're pulling yourself from that encouragement that you're going to get from fellow believers. And he says, "Um, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who rejects the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know Him who said, It is mine to avenge, I will pray, and again the Lord will judge His people. It is a dreadful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. Remember those earlier days. Now here's the people He's talking to. He's telling them to be afraid of the living God. Be warned that if you quit going to church, you may go down this slippery slope is what he's trying to say. And he says, remember those earlier days when you received the light? When you endured great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood by the side of those who were so treated. So what are these people known for? 
They believed in the light. They've been standing by the side of people that were heavily persecuted. And these people have been in the fight. And Paul's warning them, don't stop going to church. Don't stop assembling yourself physically together with other believers. They've been through a lot already. You've suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property. These people have been through some things, haven't they? Their property was confiscated because you knew that yourselves had a better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what He has promised. For in just a little while, He who is coming will come and will not delay. And But my righteous one will live by faith. And I will take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. So who is the one that shrinks back? In context, it's the one who's stopped assembling together. He's one of, that's one of the distinguishing characteristics. But we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. So God is saying, be careful, do not back away, step in. Step in and let's be faithful to God. Let's be faithful to that hope. Let's be faithful to that um, the one who is able. And, and God's saying, don't shrink back in the time of persecution. Step in. Um, so what is the author's fear here? I think very clearly as you begin to look at the way that this is written, the, he's afraid they'll be unfaithful in their connectedness to the family of faith their connection to the family of faith. He's afraid that they'll be disconnected from the family of faith. How many think that we have a lot of people that are being disconnected from the family of faith? And that's what this author's fear is, that you've been connected to the family of faith, but because of all this persecution and everything that's happening in the world, I fear that you'll shrink back and you'll no longer be connected to the family of faith. By preserving yourself, you disconnect, and by disconnecting, you slowly begin to fall away and shrink back. And so that's what he's trying to tell them here. Um, and as I go on here, I was looking, in fact, I put a few scriptures down. Um, there was a period in my life when I was, um, I was leaving one church to go geographically to another church that was in my county. And so as I left, the reasoning was good. The reasoning was I feel led to be closer to home. I've been driving a long ways, and so I'm going to look for somewhere closer to my house to go to church. And so never in my Christian walk have I ever been disconnected from faithfully attending church. But for about a month, I was visiting a few places trying to find somewhere to go, and uh, Jack Purdy called me up. I don't know if some of you remember Jack Purdy, but uh, Jack was very well respected and probably was a father to most of us, you know, at the church. And he called me up and he said, Hey, Chad, he said, uh, How are you doing? And I said, I'm doing good. I said, I'm just looking for somewhere, you know, closer to my house. And he goes, Well, have you found somewhere yet? And I said, No, I've been visiting. I haven't found what I'm looking for. I'm just going to kind of be patient. And he goes, don't do that. He goes, find you someplace quickly 
and dig in, be connected. And at the time, I didn't realize how important that was. And I asked him, I said, well, why do you say that? I said, why shouldn't I be patient to make sure I, because my tendency is to be involved anywhere I'm at. And he said, because you don't ever want your kids to see you not connected somewhere. So make sure you get connected immediately somewhere. And I took that advice. And so I immediately got connected, immediately got very involved, and, you know, and immediately. And so I started thinking about some of the reasons why over the years I've always stayed connected to the church. You know, no matter what, you know, there's never, you know, it's been, I've been in the church now for 42 years since I was 8 years old. And so I've had all kinds of different connections and all kinds of different involvements in church. And uh, and so I was just thinking of some of the things. The uh, number one thing that I put down is um, just being faithful to the Word. The Bible says, uh, you shall have no other gods before me. And how many know that the way that God speaks to His people is through the preaching of the Word? And so if nothing else, I've been faithful to God's church because God says, don't put anything else above me. And I am speaking this message uh, not to embarrass people. I don't want to be one of those. You know, it's legalism when you say you didn't show up to church every week. And it makes people feel guilty, makes them feel bad, and that's not the right way to be. But the Bible says that uh, God wants us to do the right thing, wants us to be obedient. And so being obedient to the Word uh, shouldn't be legalism. We should be looking at the Word and saying, well, man, what should I do? And in myself, I decided that no matter what, I'm going to be at church every Sunday. And that means that I've never taken a job that took me out of it. If I had a job that possibly could take me out of it, I've taken another job. Um, just I'm talking about Sundays. And how many know that Jew, Jewish people, their Sundays were overboard? I mean, they're, they're, I'm talking about their Sabbath, not, not, not Sundays, but their Sabbath. Their Sabbath, God was very serious about. And so I've been very careful as a dad to be very hard on my kids to say, hey, Try to always go to church on Sunday. Never miss. Never miss church. And as long as they were in my house and kids, they were always in church on Sunday. And so one thing we have to try to do, because your kids are watching, is always have periods of time where we're faithful to the Lord's house and not put anything else above it. And the reason I say that is because we're losing that. We're losing that in our generation where the previous generation you know, may not have been the greatest church attenders, but at least it's something we heard from the last couple of generations. And in this generation, they haven't heard that very much. You know, It's very rare to have people that stress be at church on Sunday because the Lord requires it. The second thing is, um, if Christ died for His church and He gave His purchased it with his own blood, um, it's a very personal and intimate thing to him. And so if he loves his church so much, and Corinthians says he loves his church so much he died for it and gave his blood for it and purchased the church, that means that every believer is his bride. And so my family, 
you know, there's one entity. It's my myself and my wife. It's Chad and Angela Ricketts. We're one person. And it would be very easy to say, I like Angela. She's a good girl. But I really don't like Chad that much. It would be very easy to say that. But it's hard to love the Ricketts if you don't love both of them. Because they're one entity. You could love one and dislike the other one, but it's very hard to like the Ricketts if you dislike one and hate the other. You say, boy, I've struggled with that for years with the Ricketts. <laughs> but here's my point. Jesus is the groom. The church is the bride. How can we say we love Jesus and not love His bride? And so every time a person says, I hate the church, the church did this, church did that, the church did this thing, did that thing. I don't think I need the church. What you're saying is, I love Jesus, but I want nothing to do with that person he's with. And boy, that's really hard to do. In fact, the Bible says that you can't say you love him if you hate the brothers, sisters in the Lord. And so one of the reasons I've been so devoted to the church it's like, I love the church. Can I, can, I, can I give you something honest here? Very, very honest. My life would be a lot easier if I didn't love the church so much. A lot easier. In fact, I'm thinking to myself, like a lot of people think these days, man, I'm okay. I'm just, I'm going to stay home. I'm going to get my dose of my word and I'm going to get fed, I'm going to get filled up, and I'm going to go back to work, I'm going to feel good. Why do I even need to attend? And can, be, can I be honest with you, if I thought that way, if I thought, man, this is my life, my money, my time, you know, let me just take care of me and my family, my life would be so easy. But I love her too much. And I tell you, I love her too much. I love the church too much. And so you say, well, man, I'm just going to pull myself away because I don't like so-and-so and so-and-so at the church. When you pull yourself away and you don't show up every week, the church becomes disabled. The church can't do the things that the church wants to do. You know, when an unbeliever walks in and sees you not in attendance... That's a terrible example for a new believer. When your kids see that you're not faithful to church, it's a terrible example uh, to children. Um, And what I'm saying is, if we love the church, um, Paul says in Corinthians that he loved the church because he wanted to make her beautiful. He wanted to take her church, make her beautiful for the return of the Lord when he comes back to get his bride. And I'm telling you, we got to fall in love with the church so much That's our desire, that anybody that walks in the doors, we want them to grow and come to the fullness of Christ. And so we can, one day, what does that mean? It means one day when we're all, when this is all over, we're all going to sit back and say, you know what, here's so-and-so, and look, they got received as Christ. And we're going to look at so many different people that we help God, through His grace, clean up and show mercy and love and joy and grace, and we're going to see them walk into eternity. And we're going to say, you know what, that was worth it. You know, because that's his bride. That's somebody that he loved. That's somebody that he died for. And so if we love the church, we've got to 
I mean, we just got to pour out our lives for the church like he did. He said, love um, like he loved the church. He said, love your wives like I love the church. And Jesus is constantly saying how much he loves the church. And so how can we just say that I don't care about his bride and just let her go? You know, no, we love her. We love every believer that's trying to live for God and we want to spur one another on for good deeds and good works. And, and, and can I tell you something? If we have a whole church full of people that love his bride, I mean, the church will be glorious. People will look at the church and say, wow, man, I want to be a part of that. I want to be a part. But if we don't love the church, we stay home and say, I love God, but man, the church, I'm the church. You know, it's just me. I'm the church. I don't need the church. We don't need an assembly. We don't need a gathering together. Stand your feet this morning. Hallelujah. So I just want to encourage you this morning as we go to the Lord in prayer, we're going to um, worship just for a moment here. And I just want everybody to just... um, like I said, I'm preaching to the people that are faithful to attend and love the church. I know that. But the fear that this writer has, and as a pastor, um, this writer is trying to encourage us not to shrink back. Not to look at the surroundings. In fact, I was just reading an article last night about a Greek athlete who five years ago wrote down that God created Adam and Eve. And they took that message from five years ago and have a recent law. And he was trying to say something against transgender. And something he wrote five years ago before the law was even in place, they just arrested him for. And I'm telling you, we are in a society right now where we're going to begin to see that in our country. We're going to begin to see persecution. We're going to begin to see things get possibly more and more difficult as believers. And we're going to see a lot of people retract and a lot of people uh, become their habit to stay away from church and stay away from assembling together. And, and what I'm just encouraging you to do today is fall more and more love for this church and be more and more devoted to being at church. And, and, um, and I know I'm not going to back down. I'm not, if there's just one person... Uh, in assembly, I'm going to be faithful to the very last day to assemble together and uh, worship the Lord together, encourage one another. And, um, and we don't know what's in the future, but I know that time that they wrote Hebrews was a really bad time. It was really a tough time. It was a time when a lot of people in their midst was losing property. It was being confiscated. They were losing their life, and they were being dragged away to prison. And, and uh, you say, well, man, that'll never happen here. How many know that's happening today? In a lot of the places that are hearing the word today, they're having property confiscated. They're being pulled away to prison. And just because it's not happening here doesn't mean it's not happening in lots of the world right now. And so we need to hear this word. We need to stand on it firm that we're going to, no matter what, we're going to assemble ourselves together. We're going to encourage one another. Nothing's going to stand from that. Okay, so let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, right now, I just pray that you would. Uh, encourage your people, Lord. Lord, that we would stand firm, Lord God, to you. Lord, you gave everything for us. You love us so much, Lord. And Lord, as the day approaches closer and closer, Lord, we, uh, we want to be full of your spirit, Lord God. We want to be full of that anointing oil. Lord, we want to be
be the wise followers of you that are full of the Holy Spirit. We don't want to shrink back. We don't want to fall away. We want to be faithful to the very end, Lord God. And right now, just fill your people with your presence and your power and your glory. Oh, Lord, let the church rise up in this hour. Mighty, Lord God, tearing down strongholds. Not shrinking back, Lord. Moving forward, Lord God, with a mighty army. Do it, Lord. Just spend some time with the Lord this morning. Praise the Lord. I, um, as I close, I uh, want to make sure that's not received as legalism. Make sure you understand that I'm not. Life is complicated and it's difficult to work around work schedules and different things. And just understand this is not legalism. Paul is actually, or whoever wrote uh, Hebrews is actually saying, give yourself careful consideration. Consider very carefully how in these circumstances we can stay connected and spur one another and encourage one another. So that means that it isn't easy. He's saying in the midst of this difficult time you're experiencing in this Hebrew church, give careful, that's why he's saying think about it, really think about it. Let us consider how we can stir one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together. So he's saying that it's such a difficult circumstances, we've got to be creative. Let us consider, let us think about it, let us be thoughtful in the way we do it, because we do not want to slide away during this time. We want to be pushing in, connecting even stronger. How many have seen the connection of the church loosens in times like this? And we've got to figure out let us consider how can we stay connected. That's why you have those meetings after church, Jason. It's that important to, for us to stay connected and to draw together. And so let's uh, let's continue as a church to consider ways that we can stay connected and we can spur one another on and we can interconnect those root systems together to encourage one another. Hallelujah. How many need encouragement every once in a while? I do too. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Lord, we just pray that you would encourage each person here, Lord. Lord, that we would uh, recognize the need that we all need encouragement. Lord, we all need love. We all need uh, to be spurred on difficult times. And, uh, Lord, I just pray that you bless this church, that we would uh, take heed to the warnings that we've heard today, Lord, and we would um, take them to heart. And, um, Lord, we we take the appropriate actions, Lord God, in this difficult hour that we live in in our world, Lord. It's not an easy time, but Lord, it's a very strong faith and hope that you've given us, Lord God. And uh, Lord, I just pray that you um, touch each person here and each person listening.